You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Friends, today I'm excited to welcome my guest, Dave Ferguson. Dave is the founding and lead pastor of Community Christian Church in Naperville, Illinois. Dave was on the cutting edge, one of the first adopters of um, scattered site campus-based churches. He's also the founder of the New Thing Network, which is probably the most robust church planning network actually in the world. And Dave's also one of the founders of the Exponential Conference, which started out primarily as a church planning conference. I'd say now it's really a conference for any faith leaders, but it really focuses on church planning. I've known about Dave for a long time, I think probably 15 years now, um, but I don't know Dave. We met actually on this podcast, but I've got several friends who know Dave well, and they would simply say that he's just one of those guys who's really unpretentious, really sharp. He has big dreams, and then he seems to be the least surprised when they actually happen. I wanted to get Dave on the show because I'm fascinated by entrepreneurial leaders who not only had the ability to cast vision, but had the ability to build healthy organizations. And I think that's Dave. And you're going to hear some real nuggets from Dave. I just started by asking him, when did he first notice that he was an entrepreneurial leader? So Dave, where I want to begin is, uh, you know, I think anyone who knows you or knows of you would describe you as an entrepreneurial leader. Your ability to see something that's missing, um, cast vision for it, and then build it into like what I would consider at least like a healthy organization or a sustaining thing. It's pretty remarkable. Could you just talk to us about when you first started to notice that you had entrepreneurial gifts? Um, I don't know if it was... I don't know if I noticed or not, but um, like even when, uh, so like my brother John and I, we, we actually started Community Christian Church, the same church uh, that we lead today. But even when we were kids, I can remember, I think I was probably like 10, 10 years old. He's probably eight. And we started our own lawn service business in the neighborhood. So, I mean, it was kind of like, there was something that was kind of like, oh, well, why not just start it? And then later on when I was in, you know, in college, um, I really, and we can get into this if you want, I really didn't like the idea of being a pastor, but I was, but I did feel very compelled by, as the way I word it now, to help people find their way back to God. And the more I pursued, like the best way to help people find their way back to God, it kind of was like, Ooh, that happens to the church. But I don't know exactly why, but I just intuitively kind of knew like, Oh my goodness, if I was going to work in a church, an existing one may not, <laughs> they may not tolerate me and what I want. I should just start one. So um, I think even as a kid and then definitely as a young adult, it was just like, it was kind of like just, that was, I was just drawn to it, which I think probably flows out of gifting and passion. Yeah. And you and John started community in 1989, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's over 30 years now. Yeah. So you didn't have a whole lot of models for entrepreneurial pastoral leadership back then. Uh, How did you find your way? Well, you're right. There weren't as many there, you know, there wasn't the exponential conference and, and, you know, I mean, in church planning is almost like an industry now. Um, but my dad, when, uh, when I was my mom and dad, when I was four, my brother, John was two, they moved from rural Missouri, uh, to Chicago to plant a church. <clears throat> so it was kind of in the backdrop of, you know, of, you know, growing up the whole time. 
Yeah. So, you know, church planning, obviously it's, it's almost all on, on your shoulders as you get it going. Uh, could you take us back to, um, some of the times in, in your early leadership when you didn't know what to do, give us an example of something that you didn't know what to do. And then how did you figure it out? I didn't know what to do and how that figured out. Um, well, I mean the, the whole, well, I mean, the whole idea of starting a church from scratch, I mean, I don't think I really had any idea. It's, I think one of the things that, that I, I've consistently tried to do is be someone who finds people who have, you know, more insight, more wisdom, more experience than I do, and do whatever it takes to, <laughs> to get close to those people and then ask them questions, write down the answers, and then try to implement whatever I can. Um, I mean, back in the day, when we were first getting ready to start Community Christian, I remember, do you know this name, Carl George? Yeah. Okay, so Carl George had just come back from being in uh, Seoul, South Korea, where he'd studied the largest churches in that part of the world, really in the history of Christianity. And he had developed what he called his meta-church model, which later on he wrote a book called, oh gosh, what was the name of that book? Um... I, it escapes you. It escapes me right now. I'll prepare your church for the future. That was it. Prepare your church for the future. And he hadn't come out with that yet, but he started doing these like meta church cluster consultations, which to your listeners won't mean anything. But basically what it was, was um, he'd studied the largest church in the history of Christianity and said, okay, how could we make these, how could we actually do that in the Western world? And I hadn't even planted the church yet, but I had heard that he was starting to do these. And so I just, I just began to bombard him with letters and bug him to let me come to his meta church cluster consultation. And he, and he, <laughs> and he refused. And part of the reason he said, no, you can't come. He said, one, your church isn't big enough. And two, you don't even have a church, but I was <laughs> kind of persistent. I said, you know, well, like what, what, you know, basically what would it take for me to get in the room? And finally he got back to me and he said, I'll tell you what, you can come if you sit on the observer's bench, <laughs> okay. which I didn't even know what that meant, but I knew I, so I was like, okay, I'll take it. Yeah. And uh, so I went to Cincinnati I was living in Chicago and was there for a couple different days. There were some of the larger churches in the country that were there. He was teaching them. I sat on the side in the side of the room, but sitting next to me, I don't know if this name means anything to you. Do you remember the name uh, Eddie Gibbs? Yeah, sure. From uh, Fuller Seminary, I think. Exactly. So, and, and he had been kind of the church growth guru uh, from Europe, but he'd come to Fuller and he'd never heard Carl present his latest content. And so he showed up and it turned out he sat right next to me. And so for the next like two or three days as Carl's presenting, okay, here's how you take, you know, kind of what God has done in, a, in an extraordinary way in, in Korea. And how, here's how we could make it happen and work in West, in the, you know, in the West, I was taking it all in feverishly taking notes, but I also, by God's grace, I had Eddie Gibbs right next to me, basically talking to me, explaining to me, you know, like coaching me through the whole thing. Mm, yeah. And, um, and a lot of what we ended up doing at Community, um, a lot of what John and I wrote in our first book, uh, Exponential, and a lot of what we've ended up doing through New Thing really came out of that. And But part of it was, and I go back to your original question, is I really, I try to, I, I, and still, I mean, when, I, when I'm around the right people and there's people that I, I know I can gain from, I will always try to show up with a list of questions and take notes and then go, okay, how do I begin to apply this? Um, so that's been super helpful. To me. Yeah, that's yeah. simple, but it's helpful. 
I, I know it's always struck me uh, when I'm with an older leader, someone who's got more experience than I do, and we're in some setting and they bring they get a notebook out and start writing things down. That's always convicting to me. I'm like, man, oh, these yeah. these people never stop learning. Oh, I remember one time I was uh, I was in I was in St. Louis and a guy who I'd actually done an internship at his church back in the day in California, a guy named Ben Merrill, and uh, Ben had a very very large church, but I was they'd invited me into that. I don't know, that city to talk about multi-site. And it was when multi-site was just a brand new thing. And I remember Ben coming and walking in the room. This is the guy I did an internship under. Yeah, yeah. He's like sitting there with his pad of paper, taking notes on, you know, multi-site. And it was the same kind of thing. And you're going like, okay, if he can do this, yeah, we, we can all do this. Yeah. Yeah. So you're three decades in and, you know, obviously community and uh, new thing network and exponential, just some of the, these organizations you built. Um, tell us today, like 2019, 2020, what's a leadership situation today where you don't exactly know what to do? A leadership situation today where I don't know exactly what to do. Um, good question. Let me think, 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 think. Um, I think, okay, here's one thing. I mean, we, I just came out of a lead team retreat with my uh, leadership team here at Community. And um, we finished reading the Mark DeBoz has a new book uh, coming. This just came out called uh, The Coming Church Economic Revolution or something like that. And basically he makes a case that every church needs to think of, yeah, you have a revenue stream of people who are give contributions, but then also you also need to think in terms of multiple revenue streams and really how do you begin to think of business as mission? And I feel like, and I, this is why I talked to my lead team. I said, I think we're stuck a little bit in a paradigm that we think the only resources, financial resources we have available to us are whatever people give, you know, on Sunday or online as a part of our kind of quote unquote offering. How do we begin to not only think about that, but also, okay, break outside that paradigm and think about, okay, the church uh, operating with multiple revenue streams. And as we begin to explore it, we're going like, hey, we do this event, we do this conference, we have these resources, we have this many facilities. And um, so it's, I, I feel like I'm at a point right now, I don't really know how to do it. Um, but, you know, I'm reading Demaz's book, there's other people I'm talking to, and we're going to figure it out. How do you you know, really expand your resource. You can advance the mission in an even greater way by having multiple revenue streams. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I asked the question because I think a lot of young leaders presume that they're going to grow out of not knowing what to do. But uh, my, my take is that most leaders I respect, they just have learned to live with a gap between knowing what to do and having to do something and then figuring out, you know, how to, how to get through it. I, I think that's wise. And, and here's the other thing I would say too. This is another reason, and, and I can come up with a lot some of why you need to be involved in church planning. Because after you've been doing this for a while, um, I think we have, you know, we do get kind of stuck in our own paradigm, but there's nothing like being around a church planter who's having to start all over, start from scratch. I mean, that that's where the breakthroughs happen. That's where innovation happens on the edges. And, and by being involved in church planning or being involved in church planner's life, you get close to those people. And those, I, I think there's just, it's just a wealth of learning for, pastors and established churches. 
Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it keeps you young. Yeah. At our church, we have um, college interns and it's it's the same idea. We're all getting old and we just we need some young people who don't know any better to come and shake us up a bit. I think it's yeah. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're, you're a pretty veteran entrepreneurial leader now, Dave. Um, as, you, as you look across the leadership landscape, whether it's in church or just Christian leaders in nonprofits, what mistake or mistakes do you see entrepreneurial leaders making the most? Mm. Entrepreneurial leaders. Um, I, I, I mean, a, a few things come to mind. Um, I don't know if this, this would be so much a mistake as I think one of the struggles is they, and we encourage them to dream big, but when, but when the dream doesn't match reality, it's kind of like, what do you do then? And that, in fact, we did some research through Exponential, and that's the biggest challenge for church planters is, um, is you know, everybody, you know, my church is going to be the church, we're going to grow to, you know, 500 in the first year, and it's going right. to be 1,000 in three years. And then, you know, you're in it and you're just barely making budget after, you know, three years and you got a hundred folks and, you know, and, and while that might be actually really a great start, it doesn't match the dream. Um, I don't think that's so much a mistake, but that's a struggle. I, I think maybe more mistakes when you think about entrepreneurial leaders, maybe um, I think because they're wired, whatever they're trying to start, starting too soon, um, not, not you know, not, not, not figuring out what your checklist is or working alongside someone else, especially if it's in church planning, who's, or, you know, an organization who's already done this a hundred times. And, you know, you can, you don't have to go through the brain damage that they went through. So, and then you end up, you skip a couple of steps of launching too soon. Um, there's of course the classic mistakes of any in a business or, or a church startup of, um, being under, underfunded, um, you know, and I think, I think, I think some of those things I did, um, or, or actually too, not having, not having enough leaders or not, or no plan for leadership development. Um, I mean, those are the two, I think those are the two things you have to have to keep, um, advancing the mission, um, being led, well, we all had three things led by the spirit, but then as the spirit leads you, how do you have the resources to make it happen? And how do you have the people and the leader leadership people to make it happen? So if you're underfunded or under-resourced with leaders, or at least a plan for developing leaders, that's also fatal. I think Dave, that might be one of your unique contributions, like all the, the church that you've helped build and, and the organizations you've, you've started they all seem to have a robust infrastructure. Like they all seem to uh, certainly be able to survive without you driving it. I, I wonder if that is um, the, the key missing piece for a young leader. Like I, th I think when we're young, we have so much vision. We get too excited by our own vision and we don't put enough time into the nuts and bolts. Is that what you're suggesting? Um, I, I guess... Yeah, I mean, maybe in some ways, yeah, and I because um, because I think if, if you're not if you're not investing at the smallest level, you're never going to be able to see the biggest the big dream happens. And I think um, so. For me, like let's say talk about a church, if I'm not doing the work of being in a small group, having a small group apprentice leader, but then also making sure that's happening across the whole organization then the big dream of wherever you're trying to take this thing is never going to happen. Um, I mean, like right now, even 
So 30 years into it, you know, one of our key objectives and it has been for the last couple of years, and we usually have three to five what we call KOs, key objectives that we're working at, that every location and church wide we're going after is our number of apprentice leaders. And so we are tracking how many apprentice leaders do we have at each location? How many do we have in different ministries? How many do we have church wide? And, and what are we doing to actually grow that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, and part of it for me was maybe it was also a mindset. I didn't really assume that people were just going to show up to hear me talk because <laughs> I'm not that interesting. But if I could develop enough leaders who would develop enough groups, you know, and they were, and they were, and, the, and good stuff. And that's where I think the best stuff does happen was happening in the life of those small groups, the infrastructure there, people would show up because that's, that's where their, their, their friendships were. That's where spiritual mature, maturation was happening. Um, then we could really do something together. Yeah. You, you're starting to introduce, you know, a lot of the concepts you wrote about in hero maker, um, in, in our church, we, we were a church plant. We were able to move into our own building six years ago and we, boy, we struggled for the first uh, decade or so of being portable. And so our solution to the staffing problem was to recruit people from within the church rather than anyone with training outside of our church. And here's what's been wild, Dave. We took our staff through Hero Maker last year. Right after it came out, we grabbed it. We went through it as a staff. And now we're actually really intentional about implementing it as a staff. I have been surprised at my excellent staff who are amazing leaders and their reticence to tap someone else on the shoulder and, and make them an apprentice leader. Yeah. That's not across the board. Not all my staff is that way, but this is a resistance that we've fought as we've brought hero maker in. Cause that's a big value of yours is yeah. measuring your leadership pipeline. You've, you give us all these tools to do it. Have you run into this problem uh, in other churches that you've seen doing hero, hero oh, maker work? Yes. Oh yeah. It's, okay. Yeah, why is that? Yeah, what, what's the resistance? I, I think, I think there, I think, I think a little bit of the resistance is if I train someone else to do my job, what will I do? And I'm not sure it's always at the forefront of our mind, but I think there is kind of a, you know, and I, you know, probably some of the things we even started to talk a little bit before we got on here, you know, there's this need to be needed. And, you know, when I do this thing, and I do it pretty good, then I get affirmed. And so there's probably either, um, knowingly or maybe even unknowingly unconsciously this resistance going like, if I train someone to do what I'm doing, then what will I do? And I won't be needed anymore. And um, so I actually been in the hero maker and I'm not sure this is exactly works for everybody, but I think it does for a lot of leaders. We challenge them before you ever get to that first practice of multiplication thinking is you need to have a really big dream. And this dream that you have has to be bigger than you. And then we even challenge people, you know, if you don't have a dream that's dependent on God, and you need to get a bigger dream. Because what happens when we have, I think, God-sized dreams is it forces us outside of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, do we have time for a quick story? Oh, yeah, man. Yep. You know, you know uh, Neil Cole? Yeah. I remember this is way back in the day. I remember I was sitting in a, in a workshop with, with Neil. And he was the guy who, in the workshop, he said, okay, I want you to think about your current dream for your church. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, if I had a church of a thousand people, you know, right? <laughs> if I had a church of a thousand people, my church, you know, that's how I was thinking. Yeah. That would be something. And so then um, Neil says, well, I want you to take your current dream 
and multiply it times a million. And so I was like, okay, a thousand times a million, <laughs> that's a billion. And then he says, this. he says, now I want you to figure out how could you do that? Yeah. And what was so great about that exercise is, is like a thousand people, you know, and I'm going like, you know, for some people go like, oh, I could speak good enough. I could hold the attention of a thousand people. You know, maybe for me, it was going like, well, I bet I could develop enough leaders, you know, to create an organization of a thousand people. But then when he said a, a billion, you know, you get to a, a billion people. I mean, I knew I couldn't do that on my own. I couldn't speak that well. I couldn't organize that well. And what it did is that began to force me outside of myself, which I think in some ways gave birth to um, a lot of things we got to do a community or even, you know, new thing, which, you know, we have 170 some networks around the world now. Um, and I think that's even at a staff level. Um, and I kind of, when I, in the, in the book, we actually bring it down to a hundred. So take your current dream and multiply it times a hundred. You know, if you're a student ministry leader, think about the dream that you have, multiply it times 100. Now figure out how would you do that. And as you figure out how to do that, it forces you outside yourself. And as it forces you outside yourself, I think it also then forces you to begin to have, think, okay, I got to develop other people and invest other people and, and those things. Yeah, we did. I think in the book, you call it the napkin exercise. And uh, That's exactly yeah, we... Yeah, the dream napkin. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. We did that as a staff and it was a fascinating experience. And uh, <laughs> I think for me, David, it was an indictment on my leadership because uh, I think when you recruit staff from within your congregation, the, the winners, you get all this incredible culture built into your staff. We have not really had to enculturate our staff because they, they've been a part of our church. But getting helping our staff see the kingdom of god beyond our church that's been the challenge where god's at work all over the world in these incredible ways but if all they've ever known is our church it does tend to shrink your thinking i think yeah <clears throat> here's the challenge we ran into i think some people were afraid of maybe being worked out of a job but the bigger resistance we faced is people felt it was discourteous to bother somebody else to get them into ministry, even though they loved that we bothered them. They loved that we tapped them on the shoulder and said, here's what I see in you. You know, that's another one of the things you mentioned is the I see in you conversation. Here's what I see in you. Come and come and see me. Let's now you do it. But they then didn't want to tap someone else on the shoulder. And what they were claiming was it was a courtesy issue. And that, that was more, people were more resistant than I expected. Have you run into that as well? Yeah, I think there is some of that. Yeah, we don't want to bother people. I and I, I, I do think that there, there's a there's. I think what you talked about too. The, reflect on the fulfillment, the joy that it brings you when you get to really feel like God's used you to make a difference in the life of someone else. And I do think you have to, you know, you go back to like in Ephesians 2, 10, that, you know, there's a good work that God prepared in the life yeah. of everyone to do. Right. Yeah. And you have to remind people that, Hey, no, that those people that you're serving, there's, there's also, there's something really important God meant for them to do. Yeah. And, and you are not serving them well, if you're not challenging them to fulfill that. And, uh, and I, so I think that that longing for purpose and calling that's innate in all of us. Um, yeah, I think you just have to keep reminding your, your, your staff team and your people going like, no, 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 no. You're actually, I mean, it's, you're actually doing them a favor. I mean, you are serving them well when you give them the opportunity to serve like you are. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, that, that's what we've been trying to say to them is like, you're hoarding all the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, um, you know, I can tell that you've been putting off the inevitable, but un unfortunately, Dave, it is time that we move into our gauntlet of anxiety questions that I ask of every guest. All right, let's bring it on. Yeah, let's do this. All right, so um, between a spinning mind or a racing heart or a tightening gut, where in your life would you first notice chronic anxiety? Um, I, I, think, I think it would be spinning mind. Yeah, could you tell us a little more about that? Um, okay, so I, I mean, I felt like it was, cause you sent me some of these questions ahead of time, so I was yeah. going like, you know, it's kind of like a self-assessment. Everybody, Most people like assessments because no thing's more interesting than me. Right. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of like, nah, tightening the gut, and I don't think I really ever have that. A racing heart, mm, rarely. I think it's more of a spinning mind, and the spinning mind would be, I think, kind of like, um, if like, and this doesn't happen very often either, but like, if you can't sleep at night, cause you keep thinking about something, yes, or that's it. Mind, that's that, that's what it'd be like for me. I think, I think that's the one. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And then, uh, I, I think based on our wiring and personality and all kinds of things, we all have different leadership set situations that generate anxiety in our life. Like, like it's the same situation. Are you able to name one or two situations even today where you know that it's either going to make you anxious or you're going to go into it anxious? Uh, um, see, I don't know. You can tell me if this is what you're looking for, if this is right or not. Two things came to mind. One is um, like a financial pinch in an organization. And I don't know if that's really if exactly what you're talking about, but I yep. certainly hate it. Yep. It, feels, it always feels like a distraction. It feels like, it feels like, cause it's, it feels like a distraction. Cause it's kind of like, I, because I think I am, like you've said, more entrepreneurial and forward thinking and kind of like to be visionary. It feels like, Oh my gosh. Now I, I feel like I'm digging out of a hole instead of going somewhere. So that makes me crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, before you get to the next one, Dave, let's, but, let's chase the financial one. Sure. Um, usually an anxiety is driven by a felt need. So okay. in, in this case, I'm going to play with some ideas. Maybe this will, this will, uh, maybe the felt need is, um, we can't make forward progress enough. Maybe it's, oh, I feel responsible for people's jobs. Uh, are you able to name what's driving a financial uh, anxiety? Um, I'm sure that's something to do with success. Success, yeah. No, it, it was no. It, it's too bad it's not more altruistic because I kind of assume everybody can take care of themselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, no, it probably has to do with yeah success because like even on the enneagram, like I'm a three. Yeah. And so the three, you pretty much like to be perceived as successful. Yeah. And so I think if there if there if there's a financial pinch, you know, no matter what, then that would be feel like okay, you should you should you should you should have anticipated this. You should have done something different. You know that kind of thing. Oh, that's I, I think good. Do a success. Yeah, that's a good example. Okay, so I cut you off. Is there another one you wanted to share? You don't have to, but if uh, another one comes to mind, sure. I mean, the other one that kind of also is relational conflict. I think. So well, like, yeah, if they're almost, um, so it could be with my wife or with a staff person. And if there's a conflict, I pretty much want to resolve it right now. How are you when two people you love are in conflict, but you're not in conflict with them? How am I? Yeah. Um, I would say I probably, um, what I've, 
I probably try to help them get along and figure it out without being the person who they both end up blaming. <laughs> now that is a skill. It is a skill. <laughs> um, cause yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think cause I, th- there was this, I'd say there was this, I feel like I'm in therapy. There was a season <laughs> where like when my daughter was a teenager where like I could be in the room with her and my wife and if those two are in a conflict and I was, and I would try to help, right. Inevitably somehow it, this is just my perception. I'm sure they'd have a different take on it. Okay. But my perception was that, that I would end up being the one who would get blamed like, Oh, why are you taking her, her side? Or why are you making her ask for forgiveness? I'm just like, Oh my gosh, why did I even bother? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in family systems theory, that's known as triangulation, which is when right. th- three people are in a relationship that only two people actually need to be in. Right. So I probably <laughs> just stayed out. Yeah. Okay. So related to that, uh, an, another theory is that chronic anxiety is often contagious in a group. And then the most anxious person in the room often has the most power. So for example, in a small group, if somebody is always chronically in need and they show up week after week in need, what tends to happen is the whole group puts all their attention on that chronically needy person. In the moment, the person feels really good because they get all this attention, but they almost always go home feeling like shame, like, oh man, I did it again. Um, What's the it? What'd they do again? Oh, like they took all the attention from the group. You know, they, okay. they were the one that shared all their problems every week and the group maybe never got to the study or something like that. Yeah. Um, where have you seen anxiety be contagious in a group, whether it's a staff or a small group or a family? Um, I mean, I can think of particular families where, yeah, I mean, like, it seemed like even like the mom or her anxiety would manifest manifest itself in like even sickness. Yeah. And like family was chronically having just illness after illness after illness. And you, I mean, there was no, there was no way I could prove it, but it just kind of like, what is happening there? Yeah. Um, I have, I mean, and clearly, I mean, and I, I mean, fundamentally, I think leaders reproduce who they are. And so I think that would speak to what you're saying here too. And I have seen, yeah, leaders who they're anxious about certain things and you can just feel it. You can feel it in the room. It's like in the, they are the culture creators. You can feel it in their people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You can walk into a room and feel what's happening regardless of what's being said. Yes. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Dave, you're killing it. Uh, The last question, uh, when in your (laughs) life do you feel most fully loved? That's a great question. Um, I think genuinely, I would say two, two things come to mind. One is if I'm on vacation with my family, my immediate family, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm at, I'm literally, it's funny as you're saying, I'm almost getting a little emotional because I'm thinking about one of the things we've done for probably the last decade or so, we we go up to a place called Door County, Wisconsin, and it's 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 a really nice it's a nice place, but it's kind of a there's a rhythm to what we do up there, 
And it's kind of like, I'm not sure we're going to be able to get it done this year because of stuff going on in the kids' lives and that kind of stuff. So we're, we may end up just having a four days over in Michigan and stuff. And it really, that makes me sad. Yeah. I part of it. But yeah. I love that your answer was, was people and place. What is it about the place in Wisconsin that, that gets you going? Um, I, th- I, I think, I think there, I, I think it's that the people are there and there's a, re- there's certain things that we all like to do there and we do together. So, you know, my boys are competitive runners. I run. So we, there's a park that we'll go run together. Um, I, you know, if they're kind and slow down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we'll go biking together. We'll go, I mean, we do everything together. And so I think there, it's just, yeah. And the, so it's just, it's, you know, and it's kind of an uninterrupted kind of week of just hanging out with the people that I love the most. So I think that's one. The other one that came to mind too was, um, you know, sorry to give the, the right answer on this one, but it does feel like when you're in, a, in the middle of a real, like, I'd say corporate worship experience, there's, yeah. there's certain, there's certain, there'll be a, and I can't, I'm not, I can't, no, a particular song doesn't really come to mind right now, but there'll be certain, and you, you know, and you, and when you talk about when you feel, I mean, it is there, you, I feel like grace. I feel accepted. I feel like I'm, you know, God's child. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're talking about like a transcendent experience. Yeah. 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 So I think we're, we're those are probably the two times I feel most loved. Yeah, I love that. I, I do think what's unique for a pastor is I, I think we tend to conflate our identity as God's child with our role as God's employee. And I, I think part of what you're getting at is you just get to take that pastor hat off and just be a kid. Yeah. No, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't, yeah, that, I mean, actually, that hadn't occurred to me. So I don't really, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think of it as like I'm there as his employee. No. Yeah, you don't you don't see yourself as God's employee as a default. No, no, no. That yeah. Would... yeah. Anything else you want to add, Dave, before we wrap up? No, this was fun. Awesome. This was fun for me too. I've been a great appreciator of you for several years. I, I haven't been to Exponential in a long time, but uh, yeah, I used to head oh, over to Florida. To come back. Yeah, I got to come back. Yeah, it's such a great... Man, it's such a great conference. Man, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, I just, I appreciate you stepping out a busy day and giving us some thoughts. No, well, thank you. Thanks you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for what you're doing. And uh, I appreciate you uh, having me on. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.